Revelation 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Amen. Amen. He will hold us fast. That is fantastic news, isn't it? The Lord Jesus Christ is the King of Kings, and He is the one who walks among the lampstands. Daniel helped us last night in chapter 1 of Revelation. I wonder if you noticed there, just towards the end of chapter 1, that wonderful picture that John was confronted with, that he holds in his very hands the churches. He holds those churches in his hands. He knows all about them. I wonder if I asked you what you thought the key thing that was going on in the world right now was. Would it be the war in Ukraine? Well, that's a big deal, isn't it? Is it suffering in Southeast Asia? Well, uh, with famines and, and such, perhaps. Is it the death of Her Majesty the Queen, who we know is in glory now? Is she the big thing that's happening in the world? Well, it's made an impact, that's true. But I wonder what you'd say if I told you actually that the biggest thing happening in the world right now and all the time, all the time throughout history is that Jesus is building his church. He is. I know the BBC doesn't tell us and ITN and all the rest of it, but he's building his church and, and actually he's doing it through lots of local individual churches all the way across the world. Sometimes churches working together, like through UBM and UFM and, and, the, and Yorkshire camps and stuff like that, may, sometimes like that. But actually most of the time, most of the time in, in the day-to-day, week-by-week grind that you and I know as the local church. Do you see that? Think of it like this. If you and I are ambassadors for Christ, which is what Paul says in Corinthians. Do you know what that makes your local church? Anybody got an idea? A group of ambassadors all together. Do you know what it makes it? It makes your local church an embassy for glory. Have you thought about that? An embassy for the kingdom of God. An embassy for the glory that is to come. With all that declares for what it means to know him and serve him and of the wonderful glory that is to come. Pause and think for a moment about churches that you know. Maybe your home church. Maybe some of those little churches that help us when we're on the beaches. 
with all of their strengths and encouragements and all of their weaknesses. Revelation 1, Daniel helped us see last night, tells us that he knows all about them. I think right now this morning of the little church in St. Ives that helps us, Zion Community Church, I think there are either eight or ten members, no more. In the winter, there's hardly anybody in the congregation. Do you know, right now they're holding a community open day today. They've got a team of American missionaries across and they've been knocking on the door of the Pendigal Estate behind where our house is. It's a tough place. Will you pray for them today, please? In your moments of quiet, pray for the Lord to be at work because they've got a tough job. And with the death of Her Majesty, it's an even tougher job because people are distracted. Maybe that's an advantage. But here's the point. These little churches, he cares for them deeply. And so he charges John to write to them. And as he writes to these seven churches in Asia Minor, it's obvious that each of the churches in chapters 2 or 3 are supposed to hear all the words and apply all of them. Now, the list of issues we're going to look at over the next couple of chapters um, are, uh, are pretty, pretty universal, really. He's covering all of the issues that all of the churches will face all the way across history, including churches to which you and I belong. We're not going to have time to read through the whole two chapters, let alone unpack all the chapters. But I want you to see this as we glance, skim into each one of these churches. I want you to see this. That that vision of the Lord Jesus that, uh, that John saw there in chapter 1 with the, the eyes like fire and the feet and the, and the seven spirits and so on. Actually, as he introduces himself to each one of the churches, he applies each element of his ability to get right in under their skin, to see their soul. I've been given the task this morning in, session, in our first session this morning of focusing on how he challenges them over two chapters. Now, that's a tall order because when I looked at this with my church, it took me seven weeks. I've got 30 minutes. Um, and then Steve, because Jason's got uh, COVID, Steve is going to stand in and, uh, and delve deep into an encouragement that he gives them. But remember as we read in chapters 2 and 3, and I do hope you've got a Bible open because you're going to need to skim across chapters 2 and 3 with me. Uh, as we read, the churches are made up of people. Last night, Frosty, quite innocently, or no, actually it was D Tim, quite innocently, put up a picture of Dovecot Evangelical Church uh, uh, in Liverpool, didn't you? And it was lovely. Uh, can I say, no, you didn't. You put up a picture of Dovecot Evangelical Church's building, but there were no people in the picture. Just make sure we don't make that mistake. Churches are made up of... Sorry, Tim, I'm not, you know... Um, <laughs> But it's a common mistake we all make on our church. I've insisted to, uh, uh, I insi insisted to have outside our building that it says Emmanuel Church and underneath it says meets here. Just to make sure that we remind one another all the time that churches are made up of people. So, so as we read these churches in Ephesus and Sardis and all the rest of it, remember churches are made up of people and that means churches are made up of you and me, people like you and me. So the question I'm asking is not to, what does my church have to do about what I'm going to read, though that is a question, but actually the question I'm asking is what do I have to do? How is he challenging or encouraging me? Now we've got a lot to cover in a short time, and my guess is that we're going to leave lots out, so um, 
Uh, by all means, come and ask me questions about it later on today. But the challenges cover things that, well, one or two of them, I'm going to tell you, one or two of them, as you first glance, look as though they're not too bad. I mean, it seems to be that he's making a big deal about not very much. And they overlap a bit in some ways. But we must listen to what he says and take him seriously. Because actually the challenges that Jesus gives to his churches are things that, frankly, all of us are prone to at points every week, let alone as a lifestyle. And the first challenge that he issues is the one that Tom read for us to the church in Ephesus, which was a soundly unloving church. Just open your Bible at chapter 2 there and those first few verses, will you, for a second? I have a hunch that lots of us, perhaps, who want to take God's word seriously are secret admirers of the church in Ephesus. I think we are, you know, because, because we know what a tough time they were having and they were zealous for truth. We know from Acts chapters 18 and 20 that Paul's, from Paul's letter that it was a place where all sorts of pagan and idol worship was deemed to thrive. They had the, the temple for the worship of Diana and that terrible incident with the silversmith you might remember in Acts, uh, uh, Acts 19. But the Christians, verse 2 of uh, Revelation 2, the Christians were commended for not tolerating error. That was terrific. Not just that, but they persevered. Now, you only have to persevere when things are hard. So, in other words, they stuck with what they were doing even when it was hard. They didn't give up. That's a challenge in its own right, isn't it? We are prone to give up when things get hard. They didn't. I, I want to take my hat off to the guys at Ephesus. It was really hard. But there's more than that. Verse 2, read it with me. I know it says that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you've found them false. They won't put up with false apostles. Verse 3, you've persevered and have endured hardship for my name, and you have not grown weary. What a great church to be a part of, apparently. They'd become good at spotting unsound doctrine. They wouldn't tolerate it. Don't you want your church to be like that? Don't you want all the churches that were associated to be like that? But, read verse 4. But I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. Remember the heights from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. What he's actually warning them there is if you don't turn this around, you're going to stop being a church from now on. Now, it might surprise us that that's his attitude. Because actually a church so zealous for truth, it hauled up for something as, well, let's be honest, something as apparently woolly as love. I mean, really, what is more important? Love or truth? Come on. Put your hand up if you think love is more important. Put your hand up if you think truth is more important. Good. Almost no hands went up for either. That's exactly right. We're inclined to say perhaps sometimes that being sound matters more. But this church is so zealous for truth that it leaves no room for love and has ceased to be a church at all. Heresy hunting have killed love. Remember what the Lord Jesus says. John 13. By this will all men know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. Throughout history, many churches have either died because they tolerated her heresy or because they'd forgotten how to love. Churches 
Churches can be so sound that they're sound asleep. And it is not either or, it's both. And we know, don't we, from John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible, that love is not just a fuzzy feeling. It is an act of your will. It's an act of self-sacrifice. God didn't so love the world that he felt cuddly about it. God so loved the world that he gave. It is a practical action of self-sacrifice. God loved us with the sacrifice of his son. As Christians, it means that my love for God is to be so primary in my life in response to his love for me that it results in loving those around me, even those who, who aren't very lovable. I need to pick myself up and stop and say, I have been loved to death in the cross. How can I not respond with love to everyone around me? What does that look like in practice? Well, well, first of all, it means that, that the being part of a church, uh, this church in Ephesus, is uh, they can't tolerate heresy. So we know already that it's not like being part of a social club. But actually, it's more than that. It means I am to love ferociously. Think about Paul's definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13. What does it look like in my life? It means being patient. It means being kind. Not envying, not boasting, not being proud, not dishonoring others, not self-seeking, not easily angered, keeping no record of wrong, not delighting in evil, not rejoicing with the truth, always protecting, always trusting, always hoping, always persevering. Is that a description of your behavior or my behavior as a member of my local church? Because if I'm not doing it, why should I expect others to? And the point is this, that because the universe is centered on Jesus, because he, as Daniel reminded us last night, is the center of everything. Actually, I, I need to recognize that he is Lord, that life isn't about me anymore. Frosty helped us see yesterday evening that, that, that church is not my party because life as a Christian is no longer my party. It's not my party anymore. I don't have the right to tantrum or do my own thing or behave in such a way. It, it's his party. It's all about Jesus. Which actually leads us nicely on to the next challenge that he issues to two of the churches, which were sexually immoral churches. Pick up chapter 2, verse 14 with me, will you? Here we are. He says to the church at Pergamon, You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who took Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrificed to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you have those who hold to the teaching of the, of the Nicolaitans. Now, when I read those verses in isolation, it looks as though the church at Pergamon was dreadful, but actually it was great. His letter to the Pergamon church commended their remaining Christian, even in the face of opposition. In fact, at Pergamon, someone had been martyred for their faith. This was a courageous church. But the Lord Jesus says that some members of this church remind him of Balaam and Balak, all the way back in the Old Testament, Numbers 25 to 31. Now, I don't know whether you remember Balaam and Balak, but let me give you a very quick uh, 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 explanation. 
Here are God's people. They're on the way to the promised land. They've left slavery in Egypt. They're passing through the desert. They're on the way to the promised land led by Moses. You know why it took them uh, 40 years. I'm not going to go into that. But as they were passing through, they were crossing through different territories. And they end up going through the territory of Moab. And the king of Moab's name was Balak. And he hired a sort of prophet, magician person called Balaam or Balaam to put a curse on them. Now, you'll remember the incident, even if you don't remember where it was, which is number 25, because the Lord told him to stop, and the way he told him to stop was with a donkey. A donkey spoke, and when a silly ass speaks to you, you know you're on the wrong journey, don't you? And he had to obey God, and he ended up cursing the people, but blessing them three times. But before they've moved on, Numbers 25 doesn't make such a fuss about it, but it's clear from Numbers 31 that he made another more conventional suggestion. He told the king of Moab to get Moabite women to go down to the Israelites and just seduce them. All they need to do is seduce them. Now, that sounds perhaps dreadful to us, but by the standards of the day, understand the culture of Moab involves all sorts of horrible things. Prostitution, seduction, worshipping idols, child sacrifice. Seducing Israelites is just another thing. So actually, they did it, and it worked. And the Israelites started to work away from the Lord. This is a, a pressure from outside, and it's come in, and it's just worked a treat. And Jesus says that in Pergamum, that's what's happening. Pressure from outside the church means that while still being known as Christians, some of the believers in Pergamum, remember one or two of them have been martyred, but some of the believers in Pergamum have started to compromise on their morality. And as their hearts have been captured, so they're starting to walk away from the Lord. What did it look like? Well, we're not in Pergamum, but let me take a few punts. Worldly culture says sleep around. They did it. After all, they were still Christians, and by doing that, they sent the message that that, that Christians weren't that much of a threat after all. Maybe the martyrdom would stop, and in fact, they're not all really that different, and maybe it would make them more accessible. Worldly culture said dressing suggestively was acceptable, and after all, it stopped Christians from standing out, so they did that too. A worldly culture says eating food sacrificed to idols, verse 14, was appropriate. So they did it. Maybe even in the pagan temple they did it. After all, what's the harm really? It just just helps everybody get to... And it means that the, the persecution will stop and it means that they're more comfortable with us and frankly we're just a bit less standing out so it's not so much of a problem we prove we're human. Worldly culture says getting drunk, which is all part of the idol celebration. Well, they did that too. Come on, Christians are allowed a bit of fun too, aren't they? We don't want to send the message that Christians are all stuck up, that they can't party. That Worldly culture says cheat a bit in business and come on, it's the way of the world and it will help make sure that we don't go back to that horrible persecution stuff and so on and so on and so on. And Jesus says that becoming just like the world around them being useless, uh, made them a useless witness and proved they were just ignoring him. 
and his challenge isn't to stand out as oddballs for the sake of it. That's, that's not the point here. We're not trying to be beaten up. But to remember who we belong to, who the Lord is, who the center of the universe is, who holds our church in his hands, to remember that it's not our party anymore, that it's his, both our church and our life. But it's not only that. These, they have these mysterious people called the Nicolaitans. Now you'll find them through these letters uh, uh, sprinkled. They, they had some at Ephesus too, but at least at Ephesus they were resisted. Now, you know, I'm going to be honest and say we don't exactly know who, what Nicolaitans were, but their name seems to mean something like victory people. And it could well be that these Nicolaitans have drawn some kind of conclusion that being saved by grace means that they can get on with their lives now. Like treating Jesus like a, like a spiritual soap. You step into the shower, you wash your sins away, and now you're clean. And you can get on and do your own thing, and, and you're kind of immune from now on because you've got the Jesus soap all over you. That's, you've won the victory. <laughs> but we know, don't we, that real victory isn't about throwing off restraint, but in recognizing who we belong to and listening to him. I remember Werner Wright saying many years ago, the true freedom is not the freedom to do what we like, but the freedom to do what we should. Otherwise we'd all just pick whichever side of the motorway we wanted to drive up, wouldn't we? And actually what they were doing as victory people wasn't so far from the Balaam problem. Knowing and loving and being loved by Jesus gives his people freedom to do his thing. Not license to ignore him. And we must solemnly take Jesus' warning and stick with what he says, which we'll find in his unchanging word, the Bible. It's not my party anymore. It's his. Look at verse 16, how he warns them in Pergamum. Repent, therefore, he says, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. Remember I said uh, the picture from chapter 1 keeps coming out and being applied here? What comes out from his mouth is the word of God. And since the word of God is the same word that in Genesis 1 formed the universe out of nothing, uh, Colossians 1 tells us his word sustains it. It's the same word of God by which Jesus healed the sick or calmed the storm. It's the same word of God which is described in Hebrews 4 as sharper than a double-edged sword. When he speaks at me, I don't want to be the target of what he says. Not in that way, do I? If he can say to a storm, peace be still, I don't want him to tell me off. And it's vital then, you see, that we are not just hearers, but doers when it comes to God's word. I will, I, I, I will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. I don't want to pick a fight, I will lose. And some of the church in Pergamum had been warned, but some of the church in Thyatira as we go on, they thought they were doing that. But in their case, the sexual immorality wasn't because of what was outside a church, but because of what was inside the church from this character called Jezebel. Look at chapter 2, verse 20. I have this against you, says Jesus. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, now just like the reference to Balaam and Balak, 
what he's done is take a character from the Old Testament and bring it forward to remind them, give them a picture of what's going on. There's no one called Jezebel in the church at Thyatira. Okay, that's not the point. But this character Jezebel, you'll find back in 1 Kings 16 all the way through to 2 Kings 9. She was married to awful king Ahab, who 1 Kings 16 says, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Jezebel practiced and taught Ahab all sorts of dreadful things, idolatry, witchcraft, and so on. Now, the point is this, that I've said there isn't anyone in Thyatira called Jezebel. It's just that in Thyatira they have someone, a woman, who is some sort of self-styled prophet. She says she speaks for God, and she is seducing believers into sexual immorality and idolatry. This isn't a pressure from outside the church. It's a pressure inside the church. Verse 24, it's a really subtle one because it says, look at verse 24 with me, she taught them what what Jesus calls Satan's deep secrets. And what seems to have been happening is that this character inside the church had, had persuaded people that she had some kind of deeper understanding of theology. That meant you don't have to worry about getting involved in such things because grace has made you immune. And Jesus says that such ideas are from Satan. Don't listen to her, listen to me, he says. Don't follow her, follow me, he says. We should remember as Christians, there's a lot of, bluntly, there's a lot of high sounding theological ideas that burst their way across the scene. They start in uh, uh, they start in ivory towers, they work their way out to um, uh, conferences, go out in the Christian press and eventually get down into churches. If you read the right book on prayer or you read the wrong book on uh, promises, then you'll start to think, actually, actually I've got it. I've got the silver bullet of how to be right, make life easier as a Christian. I've got the, the deep secret that none of my forebears have understood. And now I know. You know, there's a simple rule 2,000 years on from when the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. If anybody ever really t- takes you aside and says to you quietly, listen, I've got it. I've got the key. I know what it is. All those people, they they didn't used to know. But now I know. Let me share it with you. Do you know what your response is to be? When I took my beach team through this, I made them jump. (laughs) You're to shout, heresy! And run. That's what you're supposed to do. Because if it isn't from here and it isn't obvious, the probability is it isn't true. And Jesus said, verse 22 of chapter 2, he would cast her on the bed of suffering and strike her children dead. You see, those who want to claim that it doesn't matter how you live as a Christian obviously haven't read the Lord Jesus' letters to Pergamum and Thyatira. And yet, as you move into chapter 3, there was less obvious problem with the church that as you open chapter 3 and go to Sardis, was successful, successfully dead. Let me describe Sardis for you. Were you to turn up at Sardis on a Sunday morning, you would find a great crowd of people flocking to the service. They, they, would, have been, they would have been what you and I might call the happy people. 
the good-looking people. You know the type? The ones who have the nice clothes, lovely cars. It would have been a great place to be. Tidy people. You'd find friends patting one another on the back. Seats would be filling up from the front. (laughs) The music would be brilliant. The prayers would be just on point. The sermon would be really entertaining. The chief church's weekly program packed. The offering box is full. The AV would never go wrong. (laughs) Visitors would have gone home reported that this church is thriving. Fantastic. What What a great place to be. Can we go again next week? But remember, this isn't a letter from John. It's a letter from the Lord Jesus. And I've said already that as we've seen with the other letters, the way he describes himself at the start of each letter is taken from John's vision of him in chapter 1. And it's pointedly relevant to each church's situation. This time he says this, chapter 3, verse 1, read it with me. The angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. His spirit has seen, gone in, fellowship with their spirit and found it dead. The one in whom is life, who gives life, says a church is dead. How can that be? This is a really busy place. There's so much happening with such a good name. How can it be true that the church is actually dead? And by dead, we must take it to mean that there's no true spiritual life. So this church is Christian in name only. In fact, it's all form and no substance. They've got a reputation for being great, but there's no gospel there. And you see, what's really interesting about this church, unlike the others, is that these guys have been having an easy time of it. They've just fitted into Sardis. There's no threat. So there's no problem. So it must be going okay. And Jesus says, verse 2 of chapter 3, Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Now what sort of deeds is he looking for? Well, what haven't they finished? Come back to the other churches for a moment. At least at Ephesus, they'd been working hard and not tolerating wicked men. At least at Pergamum, they'd been enduring persecution. At least at Thyatira, with its problem with Jezebel, they were growing slowly but surely in faith and love and service and perseverance. They, they were, at least some of them, there was some life there. It was problematic. It was not addressing the issues, but there was some life. But at Sardis, they were just going with the flow. No trouble at all. Easy life. You know the temptation for that, don't you? I do. People are happy if you like that. Just make it look neat on the outside. Put some plastic down. Polish it up a bit. Put the rubbish aside. Just, just, just make it look good. And it fits the culture really well. It's all form. Don't worry about substance. It's all form. But the moment you start to stand out, like go to a school CU meeting. You know, you, you do what? Like actually try to share the gospel of a crucified saviour that can save people from hell with one of your mates. You believe that? Like be known in worth as a Christian. Not as a pain in the neck on purpose, but as a Christian. 
and the hassle will start because there's a price to pay. And it's not that Jesus wants his churches to be a positive nuisance and attract hassle on purpose. But if your priority is simply to look good and stand for nothing, if you spend more time on your appearance every day than you do in God's word every day, if your church cares more about how decorated the front porch is than whether there's a Bible available for people to hear and a gospel being preached, then don't be surprised if people assume the description of Christian is just means all form and no substance to. Which leads us on to be challenged by the last church in this list, which was sickeningly lukewarm. Look at chapter 3 and verse 14 with me. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds and that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're neither lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. What a scary indictment from the Lord Jesus. See, he looked at what they do from their deeds. He can tell what they're like. James tells us in James 2, show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by what I do. They were doing just enough, but not too much. What the Lord Jesus can see by what they do is that they are lukewarm. What does that mean? Well, actually, actually it means this. Have you ever... I, I, I live somewhere near the, uh, the city of Bath, or if you're from north of Birmingham, Bath. <laughs> and, uh, and they don't do it anymore because of legal everything. But when I was a kid, I can remember going to Bath, and you could taste the water. You could go into the pump rooms, and very famous. You could taste the water, so you could eat. Now, the thing about the water in Bath, or Bath, is it tastes exactly like Bath. See, it's not, it's not hot, so at least that would uh, warm you up or do something. And it's not cold, so it's actually salty. And when the fish tasted them, it's salty. It's just lukewarm. In other words, eunuch. It's just eunuch. And what the Lord Jesus can see by what they do is that they are just eunuch. No, no faith. They're just... They're just going through the motions. That's the only point of bath water, actually. It's just, it's, just, it's just liquid. It doesn't do anything else. They're not so hot as to keep on spiritual things, and they're not so cold as to make it obvious that there are things to grab. Actually, they've got... We're not given precise definitions here, but what we do have is Jesus' conclusion that is about as bad as it gets. Verse 16 of chapter 3, he almost literally says, You make me sick! What a thing to be said by Jesus of your church. Don't worry you. Worry me. Listen to how he diagnoses what is actually going wrong. Verse 17. You say I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. It's going okay. 
but you do not realize that you are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. They thought they were getting on really well, but they're comparing themselves to the wrong things, you see. Actually, they're wretched and spiritually destitute, the wrong thing. You know how to compare yourself with the wrong thing? Have you ever understood that the difference between hot and cold is always a relative measure? You know that? So, you know the experience if you're in a really warm room and you step outside into a moderately cold, a moderately warm day, you'll feel cold. If you're in a hot, sunny room and you, you step in and you put your hand in a, in a medium temperature uh, uh, bath, the bath will feel cold. You know what it's like with the sea, don't you? When you go in the sea, if you're on a really hot day, you step into the sea in the UK and it always feels freezing, doesn't it? Actually. If you're in a cold day, you step into the sea in the UK, it always feels freezing, but not quite so freezing. Okay, it's relative. Actually, what's going on? The, these people are saying, well, 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 it's something like this. How, how spiritual should I be? We've got, we've got these really hot people who, who are apparently spiritually on fire, people like, people like missionaries and maybe the odd pastor that I know, and, and, and they're the, maybe not some of the odd pastors that I know, but anyway... And they're the really hot people. And there's the cold ones, the ones that don't have a quiet time in the morning. I'm going to kind of pitch myself midway because I don't want to be seen to be too keen because that might bring me hassle. And I, but I don't want to be too cold because I know that that's not right. Do you know what that kind of comparison is called? Wretched. Wretched, he says. Verse 17. Wretched. The other place in the Bible where the word wretched occurs is in Romans 7, where Paul looks at his sinful heart and cries, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The only answer is to be found in Jesus. And actually when you stop and think about it and hear what he has to say, nobody wants to think of themselves as cold. How would it be to think of yourself as hot? Fancy that? But you know what, folks? We're not to be comparing ourselves to one another. Our value system isn't meant to be a horizontal one. Our value system is meant to be a vertical one. I'm not supposed to be looking at other Christians and saying, have I got this about right? I'm supposed to be looking at Jesus and saying, my life, my church, this world, it's your party. I've got to compare myself to you. I've got for such a long way to go. And I want to be on fire for you because actually the truth is you own all of this. And when I look at my church with all of its people, he owns all of that too. It's rubbish being lukewarm. Be one or the other, he says, preferably on fire. And the way we do that is very clear. Verse 18 of chapter 3. I counsel you, says the Lord Jesus, to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Dress properly. He wants these Laodicean Christians to grasp what's truly valuable. And what motivates his rebuke and his command to all of these churches, be they soundly dead or whatever is actually the greatest news of all at the end of chapter 3 that they are met by a steadfast saviour look at verse 19 with me 
Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. So be in earnest and repent. That's good news, isn't it? We might look at some of these churches and say, well, actually, if they're soundly unloving or they're sexually immoral, which is the current one we like to target, or, or if they're just successfully dead, or, well, actually, his reason for writing is because he loves them. His reason for writing is because he loves us. Those I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Verse 20, this is the greatest news of all. Here I am, he says. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Now I know very well and so do you that verse 20 has long been used as a great summary of the appeal of the gospel to those who are not Christians. And that's true, it is, it's true. He is commanding, open the door, repent and believe. That's true, but that's not in the context of this letter. That's not what those verses there for. In the context of this letter, it's an amazing expression of Christ's gracious love to his church, to believers, to, to you and me. Whatever's wrong with your church, brother and sister, whatever's wrong with your soul, as he speaks his word to us. He's doing so, knocking on the door of your heart, saying, open the door. I'm standing outside, the king of the universe, the king of kings and lord of lords. I'm standing outside. Open the door. He's knocking at the door of your life, knocking at the, the, the door of your church. And don't go home and say to your church leaders, now we heard this sermon on what's wrong with our church. No, no, it starts here. It starts with me. He's knocking on the door of my life and he's asking to come in and to be at home. Now I know as a Christian, I already have the Holy Spirit indwelling me, but, but he's written this to us. Because what he wants is not a box ticked, but fellowship. What he wants is to eat with me. As a foretaste of that great day when one day we will sit at the great wedding feast of the Lamb that is at the end of this book. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords is offering you and me fellowship. What are you going to do? You're going to open the door. You're going to have a great weekend this weekend. It's great to have this fellowship with one another, isn't it? But you know what? We can open the door and say, Lord, I've got ever such a lot of work for you to do in my heart. But please come in. I'm listening. I want to listen. I want to listen more. I want to long for you more. I don't want to be soundly unloving. I don't want to be sexually immoral. I don't want to be successfully dead. And neither do I want to be sickening. I want you to be at home in me. And me with you. Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we look at your word, we see our own lives in the light of what you say. And Lord, can I confess that we're all in some measure embarrassed? 
because these things apply to us at times of day, let alone times of week and in our churches. Lord, we thank you that Christ has died to bear this punishment for our sin. And we confess our sin and Lord, we pray in confidence that we are forgiven men and women who long to know Jesus better and love him more. Will you come into our hearts and come into our churches and stir us to glorify Jesus as Lord? For we ask it in his name. Amen.